Well, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the New Testament book of Jude. The New Testament book of Jude, if, if you're unfamiliar where that is, just go to the last book in the Bible, the Re- Revelation, and go to the left and you'll find it there. It's page 866 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. If you are new, my name is Joe Franzone, and I just want to, you to know that you're very welcomed and glad that you've chosen to be with us this morning. What we're going to do is actually read through the whole book, and then we're going to pray and ask God for his help. I want to say welcome to sunny northern Minnesota, but there's a part of me that says I shouldn't do that, so. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men, whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep the position of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what things they do understand by instinct like unreasoning animals. These are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's era. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all The harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourself up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. 
Keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's bow together. Our gracious God, will you please this morning bring glory to yourself and to your son and to the Holy Spirit as, as your word is preached. We would ask you to please look upon us in your grace as we begin this new book. We, we want to get it right. We, we want to preach it right. We want to understand it right. And we want to make sensible application into our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit granted to us at our conversion. So as individuals, and more importantly as a congregation, a congregation as we'll learn that is called and loved and kept by you. And we thank you for those three truths, Father. We ask you that you would do these things so we might please you. You are merciful. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we would ask that you would help us now and may your strength be made perfect in my weakness. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. Well, this morning what we're going to do is introduce ourselves to this letter in kind of broad strokes. We're going to find out what this letter means, why it matters, and what God, because God gave us this book through the pen of Jude, what God would say to us in these days to uh, attempt to make a sensible, practical application of Jude into the life of this Christ church. So that's our first aim this morning. In broad strokes, we're going to see what we're getting ourselves into. And then secondly, what we're going to do is just plunge into the early verses that will um, serve to kind of lay the groundwork for the coming weeks and few months that we are in Jude. So right away, we'll get to our first point. And if you have a worship folder, you can see in the back there the message. That's our first point, the message of Jude. Well, if your Bible is open, and I sure hope your Bible is open, it's a very short letter, isn't it? It's only 25 verses total. It's um, 650 words in the NIV, 480 words in the Greek. If you were timing me when I read it, it took about three minutes and 42 seconds roughly to read it. It's not the shortest book in the New Testament. The, the shortest book is 3 John. And so, It's not the shortest, but it could be easily argued that it's the most neglected book in the New Testament. It's it's the most neglected book, I think, because as you listen to the letter being read, it, it would be very, very hard to miss the gravity and the seriousness of the letter. I mean, the subject matter here feels very heavy. Uh, the examples are, are unfamiliar to many of us. It speaks of angels losing positions and the body of Moses and then a whole argument with the evil one and Korah's rebellion and Enoch. In fact, he quotes from Enoch and the quote is not even given in the Old Testament. So, so immediately these things and these themes don't ring bells in many of our heads. I, I would venture to say the vast majority of you here either A, have never heard a sermon for Jude or, or B, have never heard Jude preach through uh, consecutively. Now I admit that I'm part of that neglect. This will be the first time I've ever preached through Jude and maybe in about 25 minutes you may wish that, it, that you know, I'd have left it that way. 
but it's a short letter. It's a neglected letter, but it's also, it's also a very timely letter. I mean, if you read your Bible in one hand and the newspapers in the other, as all Christians should, then I think you could say that this, this is a letter that speaks in a real way to the complexity of our days. Uh, the church in the West now seems to be struggling for an identity, and, and she's not very good with her theology, and she doesn't really know what to do with all her enemies. And J.R. Token uh, wrote in, in his, this was in Two Towers, this little quote, the world changes, and all that once was strong now proves untrue. And as you think about those things, all the things that in many ways we rely on in the past, they're not there anymore and they're being torn down. So while it's certainly true that every book in the Bible is timely and relevant, I mean, you don't have to make the Bible timely, you don't have to make it relevant, it can do that for itself. So that's true, that's the great thing about the Bible. However, at certain times, there are certain books that, for, that, that kind of fit the nature of the times we find ourselves in, in a very, very, very peculiar way that we cannot overlook and so the more I studied this book, and somewhere between three or four months ago, maybe a little longer, when, when I determined that I'm going to preach through this book and began to study uh, this book, and then, as I said, with my Bible in one hand and the newspapers in the other, I discovered for me that Jude fits the scene and circumstances that we find ourselves in in this world in a very peculiar way that ought not to be overlooked scoffers verse 18 do you see it there in your bibles or deriders jude wrote remember what the apostles of our lord jesus christ said would take place in the last times scoffers well deriders well what is that that is those who subject the church of jesus christ to an unusually bitter or contemptuous ridicule and again verse 18 who follow their own ungodly passions in other words they follow their own minds it's a constant theme that we're going to run up against in jude so Jude then gives a description of a people who are in God's church, however not genuinely part of God's church, who are hammering down on her very, very hard. And they hold no allegiance to Jesus Christ, his authority, or even his moral law. And they use the church as a means to their own end. That's verse 16. Please look at verse 16. These individuals are grumblers and fault finders. They follow themselves, their own evil desires, boastful, and flatter others for their own advantage to their own gain. So with these individuals, the person of Jesus Christ isn't even on their radar. Morality may be, or ethics may be in degrees, which is part of their disguise. But it's a morality, and it's, it's an ethic where the self and self-concern is is the concern for them and not Christ. In, in a very real sense, I didn't think about this in the first service, but in the very real sense, it's, it's, it's a type of Phariseeism where the Pharisees were just, just constantly worried about how they appeared before men. The people here would be constantly worried that their mind isn't, isn't the sovereign thing in the whole equation of life and specifically life in the church. Now, on December 29, 1935, Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching his very first sermon at uh, the Metropolitan Church. And so this is the opening lines, if you would, of his very first sermon. Just listen carefully. I feel it is an interesting, interesting, profitable subject to try and decide which is the most dangerous position for a person to be in. To state openly and frankly that they are not at all interested in Christ and religion, or to follow Christ for a wrong, false reason. I know that ultimately there's no difference between these two people. 
The one who follows Christ for a wrong reason is much as outside the kingdom as the person who makes no pretense to follow Christ at all. That's perfectly true. But I do think there's an important distinction between the two when you regard things merely from the human standpoint. The difficulty with the person who follows Christ for a wrong reason is that they not only deceive themselves, but they also deceive the church. When you are confronted by one who says he does not believe in Christ, then you know exactly what to say and what to do with them. When a person presents himself as a religious person, the church tends to take them for granted. It would be an insult to question them. The church assumes that because the person acknowledged themselves to be a religious person, therefore they are a Christian. One of the most dangerous places for such a person to be in is in the church of the living God. So that's in light of what we've read. That's kind of what Jude is saying. He's, he identifies these individuals in his letter. He calls them out. Certain uh, men or these people. And I need to tell you that from time to time when you see it there in verses 8, verse 4, verse 12, verse 16, verse 19. That continual phrase, these men are certain men. You could just as easily say people because to be honest with you, the Greek word that Jude chose there is, is, is not masculine, it's not feminine, it's neutered. So it means humankind or it means people. So you could just as easily say these certain men and women or certain people or certain individuals. So it's not specifically just men. I just thought you should know that. And if you ever see that in a translation, don't be mad at the translation. They're actually doing a better job than the NIV does here. So, so for Jude, he, has a, he clearly has a contingency in mind, but he doesn't call them out by name. That's important. And I think what is remarkable here is that these people are allowed to slip into the church and somehow remain undetected and unnoticed. And as you think about that, it speaks of their ability to, you know, to speak the right kind of language. And they can move around in the church in certain ways that go undetected. They have this special ability, if you would, to, to remain uh, concealed. And they can exist in the system. But it also speaks to the gullibility and the cluelessness and, and maybe even the fear of the genuine Christian people there. Because wh- why do I say fear? Because there's no doubt that these people that he writes about, I mean, if you're sensible, they scare the bejeebas out of you. They're bullies. Wild animals, he calls them. I mean, who wants in the right mind, who wants to deal with that? And so what is remarkable here still is that In spite of the Bible's many warnings, right? There's going to be false professions. There's going to be false prophets. There's going to be false people. There is a sense that the pastor in me wants to say, oh, how could you have let this happen? But it's a constant theme in the Bible. Simon Magus, Acts chapter 8. Hymenaeus, 1 Timothy 1, 2 Timothy 2. Wolves disguised as sheep, Acts 20. Paul to the Ephesian church. Diotrephes, 3 John. All enemies, if you would, inside the church. And then there's the words of Jesus Christ, Matthew 7, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. And then Jesus has some rhetorical questions. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? No. Or figs from thistles? No. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. It's like elementary school here, right? But but we need this. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit, it cuts down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, the byproduct of their whole lines of living and thinking, you will recognize them. Now, despite the ferociousness of these wolves in sheep's clothing, here's the thing, and this is the, the main theme that I'm hopefully I'll be able to explain. That Jude's solution to them is very, very simple and very, very basic. It's verse 3. It's contending for the gospel. So yes, he'll give a profile these certain kinds of people. They've infiltrated the church because, because yeah, the church needs to be aware of such people. But it, his solution, if you would, it bleeds gospel. It's contending for the faith. And, and that because of the faith, they should expect a difficulty. So the church here is not doing something wrong. I mean, this is the norm for God's true church. Oftentimes, you know, something happens horrible in the life of a church or a church nationally or individually, and you think, well, what are they doing wrong? That is not always the case. This is, this is what life is, this side of heaven in the church of Jesus Christ. So how do we deal with it? Well, we must be patient, and, and we're not to answer their evils with uh, the very methods that they use upon us. So we don't fight fire with fire. We don't fight evil with evil. We do not fight insult with insult. No. Because if you think about that, that is so much the answer to so many in the church in the times that we live in with issues like this. And they say, well, let's get together and let's get enough of us on one side and we'll outnumber them. So they form committees and action groups and organizations and coalitions and, uh, coalitions and they make bold proclamations and they start campaigns. We're not going to take it anymore. But... What did we learn last week? And what are we going to learn in the coming weeks? The weak message of the cross to all but the eyes of faith, that weak message, the message of the bloody condemned as a criminal, shame-covered, tortured, scandalous cross of Jesus Christ, that message of the cross was the apex for the plan of God to to save the world and to keep saving the world and to preserve his church. It's important that you understand that the message of the cross was the apex of the plan of God to save the world, to keep saving the world, and to preserve the church of Jesus Christ. The message of the cross, we said last week, is the power of God. And because that's true, what Jude tells his readers is to contend for that. Nothing more, nothing less. And so his tone here to the church is not condemnation. But it's consternation, it's alarm, it's anxiety, it's worry. Don't get off track. Don't get off track. No matter what happens to you, do not get on track. And so to me, what makes this whole thing reassuring, at the end of the day, his answer to the dilemma is just so, so basic. In fact, his answer is written all in the imperatives. Verse 3, verses 20, 21, 22. Imperative in, in the Greek means these are the things which you should do. Even as verse 24, God watches over the whole church. So, so here's the lesson, verse 3a. What do we do in light of all this horror? Well, contend for the faith you've been entrusted with. Verse 20a, look at your Bibles. Build yourself up in what? The most holy faith. Verse 20b, pray in the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Well, well, we'll get to that. Verse 21a, keep yourself in God's love. Verse 21b, as you wait for the mercy of Christ, patience, patience to safely bring you to eternal life. Verse 22, be merciful to doubters. Save others from the fire. Save them and be cautious and Christian with others. I mean, it's, it's perfect. It, it's exactly what we've been learning from the Bible. The gospel, 
the full gospel is the answer to everything, right? The gospel, the full gospel is the answer to every dilemma in the life of individual Christians or the church in general or the church uh, national or international. So here you go. The enemy's in the flock. He's like a wild animal, though he's, he's in disguise. He will not be ruled. He follows himself. He follows his own mind. He cares nothing for the moral law of God. Cares nothing for the precious uh, body of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not his king. He's arrogant. He's bold. He's sloppy. He's greedy. And he opposes God's truth. And he's strong. I mean, by golly, he's like a bully. He's a bully. Well, what do you do? Do we get our own bully? You know, we find a nice guy and beef him up and say, let the fight get on. Is that what we do? No. No. My son and I were talking this week about how dancing has changed over the past 80 or 90 years. I know it's a horrible conversation. Sorry, but this is the best we could do at the time. So we were talking about that and maybe, you know, 10 minutes. And, and he was like, Dad, you're so weird. And you know how that goes. And then I started thinking privately about how fighting has changed in the past 80 years, the techniques of fighting. So in the 20s and 30s when guys would fight, they would tend to, you know, you've seen those movies where they kind of do like that. Isn't that true? And now when people fight, how do they fight? They're like, throw out their chest and do that. Jude's like, don't do this. Don't even do that if you still fight like that. Don't even, don't even fight. I know, I understand, but you get the point. Okay, what's Jude telling us? Rely on the gospel. Rely on the gospel. Contend for that and, and the divine promise. Verse 24, do you see that? The divine promise of God persevering and keeping his people and loving his people. That's the only real basis for the hope that we have. Verse 24, to him, to him, to him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Now here's the issue. And it's part of the reason we began the letter this way. If you find that these wicked people in the church of Jesus Christ, you know, they kind of get your juices flowing. And, and, and you, you start sweating when you hear this. And you're salivating. And you know, you want to take them on. Well, let me issue a warning to you. In fact, I'm going to issue a warning to you and to myself. I want to say to us, be careful. Be careful if you find yourself a, a growing spirit of denunciation. And you want to get up for a good fight. You haven't had a good fight in a long time. And, 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 be careful because if you do not instead have a deep heartbreaking sense of the awfulness and the sheer terror that awaits these kinds of people Jude is describing, if they remain unchanged, verse 13b, do you see it there? Blackest darkness has been reserved for them. And no Christian in their right mind would want hell for anyone, for anyone. Because Jude in the past even as neglected as the book has been, Jude is kind of a happy hunting ground for those contemptuous people. Now, you know, contend, contend, contend. That's the only thing they see in the whole book, verse 3. Contend, contend, contend. And so it's a kind of a book for people who are argumentative, combative, people that are generally disagreeable, who say things like, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and they're prepared to point out the people and maybe throw in a few people into that handbasket. In other words, the same general makeup of the very enemies of Christ who have infiltrated Christ's church Jude writes to. Don't miss that. The same general makeup of the very enemies of Christ who have infiltrated Christ's church Jude writes of. And loved ones that has never ever been Christ's way. 
Listen to your Bible. This is Paul, 1 Corinthians 10. This is J.B. Phillips' translation. The very weapons we are, are use are not those of human warfare, but powerful in God's warfare for the destruction of the enemy's strongholds. Our battle is to bring down every deceptive fantasy and every opposing defense that men erect against the true knowledge of God. We even fight to capture every thought, not people, thought, until it acknowledges the authority of Christ. That's why Jude says be patient to the end because even those rascals will be put before the throne of God and they will have to bow down and say that wonderful line, Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, we continue. Once we are sure of your obedience, we shall not shrink from dealing with those who refuse to obey. So if you think about what Jude is telling the church by the way of imperative, if you think about what Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and you put it all together, what is Paul saying? It's very, very basic. Keep preaching. Keep praying. Keep teaching. Keep worshiping. Keep serving. And keep declaring Christ. And keep forgiving. Keep forgiving. And yes, at a very last resort, if need be, discipline comes. Those are our weapons. Now, again, does that sound familiar? Look at your Bible, verse 3a. Contend for the faith you've been entrusted with. Fight for the gospel. Verse 20a, build yourself up in what? The most holy faith. Verse 20b, pray in the Holy Spirit. Verse 21a, keep yourself in God's love. Verse 21b, as you wait Patience for the mercy of Christ to bring you to eternal life. Verse 22b, be merciful to doubters, save others from the fire, save them, and be cautious, and be Christian with others. And then Jude says, and remember, in light of the whole thing, this whole difficulty that has come upon this church, in light of those imperatives that I've told you to do, the whole thing still finds its hope, and still finds its rest, and and this is beautiful, isn't it? And its strength in verse 24, in Him. And the one who was able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault. Why does he say without fault? Because the line of the evil people is they constantly condemn, they constantly slander, they, they constantly complain without fault and with great joy. Now that's, that's kind of in a broad stroke, that's the message of Jude. That's, that's the message. Now let's just talk about the man in our remaining moments. Now, it's important that when you read your Bible, don't skip the first few verses. Just like we said in Colossians, don't skip the last few verses. They're there. They're important. God determined that we'd have them, so we need to pay attention to them. And so the first thing you'll see, verse 1, you'll see the name Jude. But strictly speaking, the name Jude is actually Judas. And when you read of him in the Gospels, you'll read the name Judas as Jude is in the English form of the Greek name Judas. But most Bibles keep Jude, although some of the very, very old Bibles, if you have a very old Bible, I would bet that the name Judas is still there. But I think obviously the reason why the authors did that was so that Judas wouldn't be confused with the infamous Judas Iscariot. Jude is the English form of the Greek name Judas. And then when you get to that first line, you just get a small peek into the home and background Jude came from. Because what we will find is that his home, growing up, Jude's home, growing up, was the same home of Jesus of Nazareth. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. And so, if you followed our advice a few months ago, at the beginning of the year, and we said, sign up for the the New Testament, read through the year, 
If you would have done that, then Thursday of this week, you would have read from Mark chapter 6. Jesus is coming home from Nazareth, and he's kinda, it's kind of like a family reunion, and then he's starting his ministry. And part of what people said in response to what Jesus said, his teaching, Mark chapter 6, verse 3, which you have read, would have read on Thursday. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Jude, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? So, so the writer of this letter grows up in the home of Jesus of Nazareth. He's the half-brother of Jesus. And it's important to know that the fact that Jude grew up with Jesus did not bring salvation into the life of Jude. I mean, you have to think through this. It's an incredible thought. He ate breakfast with Jesus. He, he ate lunch with Jesus. He, he ate dinner with Jesus. He played with Jesus. They, they grew up together. I'm sure if you have brothers, I'm sure you did. They might have done this. You had those late night conversations with your brother. You know, you're staying up at 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning and you go through all the wonderful things that brothers talk about. Who's stronger? You know, Superman or the Hulk at that age, right? Or who's prettier? <laughs> or what's this? Or what's that? It's a great thing about growing up in a home with a brother or two. So it's no doubt that they did that. But Jude was playing around and talking to and eating with none other than the Messiah of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, through all those years, he refuses to believe on what Christ is saying. And on one occasion, this is the grown-up Jude, he even thinks that Jesus may be even a little bit delusional. And so the Bible tells us that it's only after the resurrection that his physical family, Jude included, come to faith in Christ. Now, as you think through that, isn't it something the way that Jude introduced himself? He, he says, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, if, you, if you're honest, you're going to be honest and you're going to approach this thing and you're going to say, well, I'm going to be Jude just for a moment. Many of us probably would have, you know, we would have dropped something powerful about ourselves. You know, a name dropping here, a big, big name. I'm Jesus' half-brother. He doesn't say that up front, does he? He doesn't say, I am a brother or the brother or half-brother of Jesus of Nazareth. And you can talk to me, and you know how that goes. You know, I got the big name people in my corner, and I know, and I know, and I got just a little bit more insight because I've been with him all these years. But rather, what does he say? He says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Christopher Green, commentary, one good sentence. He says this, no one is too privileged to be exempt from the need to be converted. It's good, isn't it? No one is too privileged to be exempt from the need to be converted. So, so Jude takes his family stuff and he, 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 he coverts it. He misdirects it because of the privileges of salvation. Okay, Jude, who are you? Well, I am a bond servant. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Okay, so you have two titles. Both true. Half-brother of Jesus Servant of Jesus. Which one would we pick? Filling out a resume? Which one would we pick? C.S. Lewis. Screw tape letters. Screw tape is, is the older demon. It's a fictional account. Older demon writing to Wormwood, the younger demon, and he's writing to, to um, make him a better demon, if you would. And the two things, when you think about slavery, when it comes to Christ, is, is the issues of mind and time. 
Can Jesus Christ tell me everything I ought to do? And is Jesus Christ Lord over my all, all my time? Two honest questions any person would ask. So Screwtape writes to Wormwood, and this is what he says. Now you will have noticed that, that nothing throws people into a passion so easily as to find a track of time which he reckons on having as his own disposal unexpectedly taken from him. It's the unexpected visitor when he looks forward to a quiet evening or the friend's spouse turning up when he looks forward to a one-on-one with the friend. Those are the things that throw him out of gear. Now he is not yet so uncharitable or slothful that these small demands on his courtesy are in themselves too much for it. They anger him because he regards his time as his own and feels that it belongs to him and it's being stolen. You must therefore zealously guard in his mind that curious assumption, my time is my own. Let him have the feeling that he starts each day, listen carefully, as a lawful professor of 24 hours. Let him feel as a grievous tax that portion of this property which he has to make over to his employer. And as a generous donation, that further portion which he allows to religious duties. But what he must never be permitted to doubt is that the total from which these deductions have been made was in some mysterious sense his own personal birthright. You hear what he's saying? This job is taking my time and the church is taking my time and this is my time. No. No. The commentator Manton, this is the normal way that Christians speak of themselves. This is the way they denote a godly wish to carry out God's revealed will. I mean, one of the things we're going to learn about these guys, these bad guys, these bad people, is that they will not do what Christ says. They will not be ruled by anyone, especially Christ. And then Manton goes on, so anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, no matter who they may be, is said to be Christ's slave. And then he quotes 1 Corinthians 7.22. The one who was free when called is Christ's slave. And so, this is our great privilege. Jesus Christ is not our avatar. He's not our guru. He's, He's not our coach. He's not our mentor. He's our master. He's our Lord. He's our savior. He's our king. And he's our friend. And he's many other wonderful things. And so, so that we may never overlook or remove or or be afraid of the title Jesus Christ his Lord okay our time is is just about done one last thing I read through Jude kept reading through Jude and I thought I'm going to write what I think the whole letter is saying in just a few sentences and and this actually helps me understand the book better and it's not very good but it might help you listen carefully I'm writing to you, not because I wanted to, but because I had to. I do love you and long to see you, see you well kept and keeping on. Let me remind you of these horribly sad examples from the past. They make my point. Our leader said this would happen. Listen to your leader. The bad people don't. So keep your chin up. Be steady. Be gracious. Care about the lost. Rely on the gospel and rest. Rest in your God. And then I sang to myself, Hey Jude, don't make it bad.
take a sad song and make it better. Let's pray together. If our helpers would come forward as we prepare for the receiving of communion. Father, we would ask that you'd make the Jude book of Jude live in us. That you would show us ourselves. That you'd show us our Savior. And that you would make in the coming weeks and months to make the book of Jude live in us. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen.